enemy spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Ah! Did you know? Let him get away. Arthur, Gesundheit. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, oh what's this? I... It's full of hooks. I... Oh, they're tearing into me. I... Episode 123 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight we return to the 1940s Universal Horror Thread to uh, jump back into an invisible suit. Yep, yep. Parade around in our mm. invisible nothingness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and wonder just how cold it would become before you decided that you, you weren't <laughs> yeah. really that chipper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the way, this is, uh, this is our 11th anniversary episode of being podcasters. You know, we, we oh, did our first, uh, we did our... First, uh, first uh, Nashi cast actually, which is in February of twenty of uh, twenty ten. So 2010. yeah, yeah, that was a uh, long time ago. Yes, it was. In, the, in podcast ages, it's roughly dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so long ago that nobody yeah. has yeah. any right to still actually be listening to us or yeah. to even discover us at this mm-hmm. point and mm-hmm. and wonder just how the hell we've been doing this for as long as we have. My God, it's kind of embarrassing <laughs> when I think about it. But tonight we're going to talk about uh, the third. No, pardon me. The fourth Fourth. Mm -hmm. in the Invisible Man series produced Mm -hmm. by Universal Studios. This is Invisible Agent from 1942. Uh, Screenplay written by Kurt Siadamak and -hmm. directed by a fella who uh, directed a lot of very different things. We'll talk a little bit about the director Mm -hmm. later on. He did Mm -hmm. some some interesting stuff. Yeah. And I I have to say I'm going to heap a little praise on him for this film as well. I'm pretty happy with the... Well, let's let's put it this way... Um, Sometimes these films, especially the ones that we're talking about in the 1940s, you know, the budgets were a good deal lower than mm-hmm. uh, other product at the time. And we're about to move into a very interesting uh, period of filmmaking in general in the United States, of course, the mm-hmm. war years. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we run across one that's actually well-directed and seems as if uh, a lot of care was taken, uh, sometimes I think it's because of some of the stuff that is involved in making this movie that probably made that possible, which is you almost have to allot a certain amount of time for a film with this yeah. this many special effects sequences. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that may factor into it. But 
to the side. Uh, one thing that uh, has absolutely nothing to do with this, we'll, we'll get to Invisible Agent in just a moment. I just wanted to say that I just recently found out a few days ago that I'm, sh I'm shocked to learn that uh, Shout Factory is going to be putting out a Blu-ray of the 1976 King Kong mm -hmm, film, mm -hmm. uh, which is a movie that I have a lot of love for. Yeah, uh, me it's, too. It's, it's not the original 1933 film, in my opinion, mm -hmm. but uh, my enjoyment of the King Kong films deteriorates over time. There's, mm -hmm. there's the unassailable classic from 1933. Mm -hmm. There's the 1976 version that I still truly do love. Mm -hmm. And then there is the 2005 film by Peter Jackson where I just feel like everything that could go wrong kind mm -hmm. of sort of did go wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the term excess in capitals yeah. underlined and mm -hmm. with exclamation marks after it is kind of the Peter Jackson King Kong film. I just think that it's too much of fuck near everything. Yeah. Um, not that there agree. aren't fun things in it, yeah. but it's it's literally the only King mm -hmm. Kong film I have absolutely no desire to rewatch. So I'm very very excited that there's finally going to be a kind of special edition Blu-ray of the 76 version, which, don't get me wrong, like I say, not the, not as good as the original by far, but one that I have a lot of joy for. And, and maybe because, I mean, you and I both are kind of children of the 70s, so yeah, that we may both, be a big yeah, part of it. Yeah, seeing it in the theater was, yeah. Oh, I, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't get to see it. Yeah, it was great. I, you know, And I watched it many times when it would show up on TV with, as we talked about, very different scenes, yeah. you know, uh, added to the TV version. and. Uh, well, I think the TV version, they, they spread it over two nights. Exactly, yeah. So, so they kind of had to cobble a lot yeah. of stuff that got cut out of it into it to make it long enough. Yeah, so. and like you had mentioned, we're hoping that some of that that, that will turn up, uh, at least those extra scenes. Uh, would be great if they did the whole TV edit as a second feature. You know, oh, that would but, be but, fine. But, it, but even if just the extra footage would be great to see. But this film is... Uh, it's much more maligned than the Peter Jackson film, and yet I would glad I would watch it any day before I would watch the Peter Jackson version. Yeah, yeah, the P the Peter Jackson film. It's it's that was the, that was the point at which I feel that Peter Jackson kind of it, cinema kind of got away from him. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it the best thing Peter Jackson did with King Kong is when he and all those guys got together and filmed the you know the actual missing you know oh, refilmed the the, that was fantastic it's like yeah. yeah Peter that was great that's what you just should have done and not the not, not, not make the another film. King Kong yeah. film right yeah <laughs> not not make this three plus hour oh, opus God. that's just so I mean, much fat on it it's like just uh, yeah. there's so many things in it that now the best stuff is between Kong and, and the girl you know those uh, a lot of those scenes kind of finally achieve the movie magic you were hoped for in, in, in brief places, you know, yeah. but, but I mean, there's parts where it's like actually finally transport you for a minute out of the fact that you're mostly mad at this film for, for, for just not having the ability to pull back at any moment, you know, to have any kind of yes. exercise, any kind of editing or restraint. But there are those moments in the, some of the scenes between Kong and the girl, you know, that do kind of, finally get you on the emotional level that this movie should but they don't last they're just these because you know yep. they're just these little isolated moments you know well, I have to say though I was with the film I remember seeing it in the theater and and I was with the film even though I felt it was it was really too long yeah. <laughs> I was with the film and I was hanging with it until the uh, the dinosaur uh, oh. stampede that was just yeah. ridiculous yeah. yeah I mean not yeah. not just it wasn't just destroying any reality that mm -hmm. the movie had had up to that point. Mm -hmm. It was idiotic to the point yeah. where it, it needed it needed just a complete rethink from the ground up about how mm -hmm. they were even thinking about staging the sequence. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, from the and just from there on, it just that that unfortunate misstep seemed to be the template for 
multiple missteps for the rest for the next two hours essentially yeah. and for just, the uh, next few films of Jackson's career all the Hobbit films fell into oh, the same problem here you know where where every sequence had to be double triple the time it needed to be yep for one thing it didn't need to be three films but that's you know <laughs> that's you no, know that's a whole other thing but but yeah yeah well to me the the the, the whole fight with the Tronus the, the tricer excuse me I can't speak the T Rexes is the one that, that, that just pushed me over the edge, too, where they're falling for hours among those vines, oh, it seems. It's like, if you're going to do something like that, make it quick, long enough you know, for you to just make it exciting, punch, punch, and then can go. But instead, he, he and these T-Rexes and the girl fall f- through these vines and fighting and, and hanging and landing from one vine. That for, it goes on forever. <laughs> it, it, quite honestly, they're falling through the, the core of the planet. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, good God. But... <sighs> but you know, I'm sure that there are lots of people who, for them, that is their King Kong movie. Well, sure, just, sure, yeah. It's not it. my King Kong. Movie. No, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, if you love it, hey, that's awesome. You know, but, it's, but uh, there's going to be a special edition of the '76 version, and that's yeah. exciting. That is exciting because yeah, because I think the film is is really unfairly and unfairly treated. You know, it's, well, it's, I think it's there's really been good. a uh, I think there's been a, a change in it in view yeah. in general. Yeah, it has it a little bit over time. I think that there's been kind of a, mm-hmm. a reassessment to a degree, mm-hmm. and I think. I think that's very good because there's a, there's a lot to reassess. I'm, you know, it's far from perfect. There no. are, there are, there are yeah. things within it that I I don't think are are great, but um, just overall, I think the the sheer ballsiness of it, and I mm-hmm. think the the take on the story, the take on the characters, mm-hmm. the modernizing of the story doesn't feel uh, stupid or silly. Mm-hmm. The they came up with a, a smart reason for why something like this would be going on in yeah. the 1970s, and this. And, and good lord, what a what what an incredible cast! Oh yeah, fantastic! Time, yeah, so. yeah, good cast, and and I think it was a wise decision to not have him fight a whole bunch of monsters because it would probably look terrible with the type of uh, yeah. special effects and technology they were using at that time. It probably would have just been more distracting than anything. So, I think it's probably best that they kept kept the you know fights with other other creatures out of it. And I like many gorilla suits, so there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, when it, and they, hey, well, you're going to have a gorilla suit. There's, they, they tab the right person to make it, you know. They yeah, type no it, you know. So anyway, um, anyway, but I just wanted to. That's say the closest that. to a chimp we're going to get in this episode. Now we're going to <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> you're going to fuck with me. I know you will. At any rate, uh, folks, if you've got uh, any comments, if you uh, want to try to defend Peter Jackson's King Kong movie. The email address for the podcast is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Write us. We'll be glad to hear from you. You can record a message and send it to us that way as well. We'll be glad to make it part of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do uh, we, we do reserve the right to make fun of you if we disagree with you. <laughs> but then we, we do that anyway. So it's, it's, it's just, it's just We're threatened by those with other opinions. So we <laughs> yes. use humor to... Yes, we're, to, we're, to, we're to, threatened to. by people who do not agree with us. We... <laughs> we we cringe and we we strike out like yeah. like like bull weevils with attitude. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> Friends, clearly I've become uh, mm-hmm. I've become drunk with power, mm-hmm. uh, or just drunk. I don't know. But uh, give us just a moment here. We'll take a quick break and we will come back in and uh, dive headlong into a discussion of Invisible Agent. I think it's strange that they didn't call it the Invisible Agent. Yeah, yeah. Just just Invisible, Invisible Agent. agent. <laughs> Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. 
Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now, we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now, I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. It's the From B to A podcast season two at FromBtoA.LiveSin.com and on Apple Podcasts. I take a celebrity who took a while to make it big and compare that pre-stardom career to the career of someone who made it big right away and then established more of a cult fandom. This season I am covering Angelina Jolie. You were the one. You were the only one. And you were amazing. And film director, master of Italian horror, Lamberto Bava. It was only a bad dream. There will be cyborgs, demons, ogres, supermodels, giallo, and a smooth-talking Danny Aiello. I see you ordered the turkey sandwich. You like turkey? released July 31st, 1942. Ha! The fourth Invisible Man film. Mm-hmm. Um, you had never seen this before? I had not. I had never seen this one. What did you uh, what, what, what did you expect from it? That's the first question I have for you. You know, uh, my expectations were not great. I mean, I was looking forward to just the fun of seeing an Invisible Man film, but I don't think I had really ever heard much feedback on it or right. I might have been confusing it with that. I felt like that in general it was not that highly regarded and I guess just because of where it was falling I guess I was expecting something that might be 
you know, fun. With the title, I certainly expected it to have a lot of direct reference to the war. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I didn't really take a peek at the, really the cast, you know, that was in it. And uh, just, yeah, was was just kind of expecting something that was going to be more like a filler, potboiler programmer, as they call them. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Definitely not what I got. <laughs> no, it's, uh, well... Let's talk about let's let's talk about what it what it definitely is. This is one of the first films that we can point to, and definitely I would have to say the first of the universal horrors that we can mm-hmm. point to mm-hmm. uh, in our little timeline mm-hmm. of releases here, where where we could say this is a wartime film. Yeah, full on, you know, not full on, just dealing directly. Yep, with the war, uh, and to a certain degree, I think you would be safe in calling it a, a bit of a propaganda film. Oh, I mean, it's, oh absolutely! It's definitely yeah. a rah rah good, mm-hmm. goodies versus baddies mm-hmm. kind of story yeah. with yeah. the the Axis powers minus the Italians at this point. I mean, we right. have bad Germans and bad <coughs> and bad Japanese people played mm-hmm. by a Hungarian. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get to that eventually. Uh, but what we've got is uh, you know Allies versus Axis mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. on a. Uh, a science fictional mm-hmm. scale, uh, uh, very interesting. They use it's I think, it's, it's hammered in uh, into our brains several times along the way that the allies pull together and the Axis are just out for themselves. You know, and cut cutthroat bastards exactly. waiting That's to right. stab each other in the back at the first opportunity. That's right. <laughs> Which of course makes for an interesting film. Yeah, <laughs> it's the the concept of uh, the Japanese and the Germans cooperating mm-hmm. seems. Uh, Basically, a complete a complete impossibility to the screenwriter of this film. That'd be <laughs> yeah. Kurt Siadamak. Uh-huh. Well, I I do like this. So let's start with the ad blurb for Invisible Agent: The Phantom Commando striking terror into the very heart of Germany. <laughs> now, before we get into a, a plot description and a breakdown, let's talk about how uh, there are some odd tonal shifts in this movie because it seems almost as if they thought that there was no way to make an Invisible Man movie without having some comic relief sequences within it. And I, I kind of get where they're coming from because some of the uh, some of the more memorable sequences in the original film, the 1933 mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. are technically funny scenes mm-hmm. where Claude Rains' character is starting to kind of teeter on the edge of madness and, and kind of messes with people mm-hmm. because he's invisible. <clears throat> But it's because he's descending into madness. And so, mm-hmm. as amusing as those sequences might might be for us, they are also kind of cringeworthy because we're watching this character who we know is becoming less and less hinged. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this film, we we one of the things that I, I wish that the, the I wish the film this film had retained that that concern with the drug that allows you to be invisible driving you mad i agree uh because they even make a reference to it early in the film pretty right. quickly the main whose guy is going to be our hero uh you know talks about how dangerous the use of the drug is and we're kind of dropped those hints early on as the film goes on it becomes apparent that in this particular film the only danger of it is that it's going to put you to sleep every now and then and make you drowsy you know he falls asleep at odd moments at times and that seems to be the only real danger of the drug as far as affecting you in well, any way, or you know, and in in what I consider to be the 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 biggest misstep sequence in the entire movie, or just make you want to fuck with do, people, yeah, do, <laughs> do, stu- do, do stupid shit. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, because because yeah, because that would have been very. I thought that too. I definitely felt like the um, how interesting it would have been to see him fight against losing his mind at the same time he's trying to complete this mission could have added a yep. whole other layer. Of, yeah. of, of of tenseness, you know, of suspense to True. what's going on. 
And I would say that that would be difficult to pull off in a movie like this because... Because you got so much else going on, Well, too. no, no, because he's invisible. And yeah. a lot of that would have to be played out over an actor's face as they're, as they're trying to control themselves or, while, or they're trying to, you know, kind of ratchet the, their sanity down to, to be able mm. to, to use their wits in a way that would, you know, either save mm. their lives or, or allow them to complete the mission in some way or another. But uh, I was going to say... You know he's invisible, so we really you wouldn't really have the opportunity to that. So to a large degree, you've got to kind of find a way to paint with a broad brush, mm-hmm. and let the let an actor's voice mm-hmm. carry carry whatever nuance that it can to get that kind of thing across. But then again, this is an Invisible Man movie where the Invisible Man is visible a shitload more than you would expect. Yeah, I mean to the point where he's like rubbing on cold cream and and, <laughs> and do, you know do, do, you know ma- making himself visible in different at different points of the movie where it just seems uh, it seems oddly unnecessary and it also could be a case where as they didn't they wanted to ratchet down the madness factor because in this case they're the it, the theme of this film and the time it's made and what they're trying to convey is I, I think you know they want to have a fairly spotless good good hero in other words oh, they, oh, in other words I like they saying, because yeah. you have to have the Nasty villains are obvious to us. The the American hero, the person representing America in this, has to you know. I think that's maybe one reason why they also didn't want to give him too much darkness in his character. You may be right there, which is a shame because they have stacked the deck with some with some really great villains. Oh I my mean, god, yeah. Uh, I have to say, I, I was really really happy with Sir Cedric Hardwick as the uh, the nasty Nazi. He's terrific. I think he borrowed his glasses from Lionel Atwood from the last film that we <laughs> that we covered from the strange case of Doctor Rx. You may be right, but uh, he's he's great. He's he's very he's very suave and very mm-hmm. slick. And then uh, we have uh, the great Peter oh, Lorre. Man, Lorre's amazing in this. Who uh, is is playing a playing a Japanese agent in this film? And of course, that's a that should that shouldn't be too strange. I mean, yes, he's in Hungary. He's a Peter Lorre was from, from hung, Hungary. And therefore, you have a Hungarian playing a Japanese uh, mm. character with, with no real makeup on his face whatsoever. He's just mm. got those round glasses mm. on, which is supposed to immediately signify Japanese for some reason. I don't understand it. Um, well, I have a lot to say about that. I don't know if we want to get to it now, if you want to read the synopsis for a while and then we get into it, or you want to go into it. Well, I will just say this, that it's not that odd for them to do that, considering that he played a Japanese detective named Mr. Moto in a series of eight yeah. films in the 1930s. Right. right. Uh, a, fi- a film series I have a lot of time for. I think they're great. Uh, but at the same time, the... The, the the choice to choose a Hungarian to play a Japanese man is it's it's one of those it's one of those things where you're you're glad that we're past that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, oh, sure, Lori yeah. Lori is fantastic and in, in mm-hmm. actuality he's probably one of the best, if not the best thing in this movie. The villains really are the best things in this yeah, movie in my yeah, opinion. They are. But the uh the uh silliness of it is 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 a little odd, especially when you have secondary characters being played by people like Key, Key, Luke, Key Luke, yeah, yeah. stuff like that, who actually are Mm-hmm. Uh, of of Asian extraction and, and you know uh, although uh, they would honestly use people you know Ch- Chinese native well Chinese uh, descendants uh, from mm-hmm. China uh, uh, <laughs> the Philippines wherever to play just you know Japanese Chinese they didn't really mm-hmm. care in Hollywood it was just it, it get those exotic features mm-hmm. on this on the screen so we're at least selling the idea of there being different different uh, cultures and races represented on screen so that we get that kind of fake reality that we need for the Hollywood backlot. But the uh, I can't say too much about Laurie because I do enjoy the Mr. Moto films and I do enjoy the 1930s and 1940s Charlie Chan movies and good lord 
my favorite Charlie Chant mm-hmm. was was played mm-hmm. by a man from Sweden. So I mean, yeah. I can't really, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, if if well, I if I walk down this path too far, I start mm-hmm. to I start to you know I start swallowing my own tail to a certain degree. Well, I'll tell you this, and you probably don't. You probably saw this film far back enough that you don't have a memory of this. But me just seeing it for the first time here in the last few weeks, um, I can say that. I did not pick up on that first scene with Peter Laurie that he was Japanese. Exactly. I thought he was just a sinister, one of those kind of, you know, he's the, um, I can't remember the character's name right off from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but, you know, the guy who's not, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, the Ronald Lacey plays, you know, he's like that kind, you know, doesn't dress like a Nazi, but is is is, is part of the, you know, in, in with their, you know, thing. So I just thought he was a sinister Nazi dressed in black. Um, it really wasn't until the second sequence with him where they call him Baronito that I realized that he's supposed to be Japanese. Now, same, same thing, yeah. Put yourself in the perspective or the, the place of, a, of a, someone in 1942. You've only just a few years before seen him play Mr. Moto. So they audiences at that time may have immediately seen him and thought, oh, he's playing, with, like you said, the telltale glasses, you know, right. and, and, and said, thought like, oh, he's playing... He's he's a Japanese. He's a Japanese person. Yeah. And and how interesting is it too that you know you only skip ahead a few years and the idea of a heroic Japanese character would be totally out of the you know out oh, yeah. of the question in Hollywood at this point. Whereas just a few years earlier he was playing the likable Mr. Moto. Now you go to 1942, you can have likable Chinese characters because the Japanese are committing all sorts of atrocities against the Chinese at this time. So you can have likable Chinese characters, but you cannot have sympathetic Japanese characters. So. Yeah. It would be almost like um, Western audiences seeing Henry Fonda suddenly play a, a bad guy in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. You know, somebody yes. used to, they're doing this with Peter Laurie. They've seen him play this benevolent, likable Japanese character. And then suddenly he's this incredibly cold, sinister, just, I, I think he's great in it. I think he's, 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 he's I, you know, to me, I'm really glad, A, that he did, that they didn't do eye makeup on him, you know, because even though there's good performances with people wearing that kind of makeup, it very rarely really works convincingly. And two, I'm really glad that he didn't try to speak with any kind of Japanese pronunciation yeah. of words that he just spoke in his normal. He speaks softly like he would, you know, you think of Japanese people speaking, but he doesn't try and give the words of Japanese inflection, which is great. I think, yeah, I think does, that's good because you, you get used to him very yeah. quickly. Once you realize he's supposed to be Japanese, I didn't have any problem from then on thinking well, of him as that. Plus, it's Peter Lorre, and yeah. he's, he's, he's an exceptional actor. Yeah, yeah. And, man, he's so magnetic in yeah. these kinds of roles because... Yeah. He was able to exude a sense of evil. A, yeah. a, a there's there's a there's a certain something that mm-hmm. Laurie and a lot of a lot of other actors. I mean, Lyle Atwell is a great example who can exude a sense of evil, a sense mm-hmm. of of mm-hmm. malevolence that just oozes out mm-hmm. of them and oozes off the screen yeah. and just seems to be something that makes you glad you're not in the room with that character because yeah. they seem dangerous yeah. and he seems dangerous. And one of the strengths of this movie, I think, is I think there's a lot of good dialogue in this film yeah. and that works great because it's in, you know, for Hardwick and Laurie have great dialogue to work with in their scenes together and they do they do get the most out of it but there's actually some really well-written scenes. There, there are there there are some there, there's some good scenes with some great dialogue, and then there are some scenes where the dialogue is well, is, yeah. is not so awesome. And sure. those are the scenes that I'm gonna I'm gonna mm-hmm. gonna underline as mm-hmm. we go through this, where I'm just a little little disappointed that uh, we maybe could have done without a particular element element in in this mm-hmm. stew to make it mm-hmm. a bit more streamlined and to give it a better mm-hmm. overall tone. But okay. we'll we'll get to that. Now, as we said, this is. Uh, this is a film that definitely kicks off the propaganda period mm-hmm. of uh, Universal Horrors. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
not 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 many more of the universal horror films of the 40s could be called propaganda films in general they would start to ignore it as quickly as they could to be mm-hmm. honest mm-hmm. Uh, we do get into the Sherlock Holmes series was different because mm-hmm. of course those took place in the 40s so you have mm-hmm. Holmes essentially being uh, uh, I can't remember if he was ever an official British agent working against mm-hmm. the Germans in those movies mm-hmm. I guess we'll learn that as we go along through the series but in general as far as the monster movies concerned this is one of the last times when you have a definite we're not playing around. This is definitely exactly what you think it is, wartime propaganda kind of movie. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. That, that's not, in my opinion, a knock against it. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it. It can be just as enjoyable to watch something like this if it's well done mm-hmm. as it can be to watch you know, some of the more ridiculous Red Scare movies of the yeah. 1950s that sure. you know, went over the top with this you know, <laughs> commies under your bed kind of BS. But at the same time, because it is that way, you do end up having to... The more you know about the, those kinds of films that were produced in the 1940s, the more you end up comparing it to some of the others that were made at the time. And, and most of the ones that I kind of cherish and know aren't really good are, are the B-movies, the kind of... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the ones made by, by mm-hmm. Monogram and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, my all-time favorite kind of almost incomprehensible mm-hmm. wartime propaganda film mm-hmm. uh, is the Bela Lugosi film Black Dragons, which... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is uh, people, if you've never seen Black Dragons from uh, 1942, from this same year, you could have probably seen these within a week of each other, I swear. Uh, Black Dragons is almost so ridiculous that you you, you, can't, you can't understand what's happening. <laughs> and when you get to the final reveal on, on the, the actual ethnicity of the character being played by Bela Lugosi, your, your jaw will slap the ground. But... There were there were there were some horror movies like Black Dragons, which is kind of a horror movie mm-hmm. that were produced <laughs> that were wartime propaganda films, things like King of the Zombies and Revenge of the John Zombies and things like that. And every now and then there would be another uh, there would be a mad scientist film where uh, mad scientists would be uh, kind of in league with the Nazis because the Nazis were uh, you know giving him uh, free access to yeah. soldiers that he could yeah. experiment on or something like that, but. This being uh, a wartime propaganda film is interesting in and of itself because it's not just something tacked on to the end of a film or kind of ham-handedly forced into it. The whole story is built around, Mm. you know, creating an invisible spy to Mm. go into the Mm. home country of the enemy and extract information. And the thing that convinces him to do this is the attack on Pearl Harbor. He refuses yep. to share his, or to use his, 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 his I guess his grandfather's drug at this point uh, until, until the uh, Pearl Harbor attack. It's, it, which, which is kind of fascinating. Of course, the, mm. the, the editing of the sequence of him going, no, I won't do it. And then immediately, <laughs> it's almost like, immediately yeah. there are bombs yeah. exploding, newspaper headlines hey, swirling yeah, at yeah, us yeah. about uh, Pearl Harbor. And you're uh, just like, you know, you could have let a couple of seconds float by before you <laughs> slammed us with that, because now it just feels like that that old sitcom joke of exactly. I won't do it. I won't do it. Yeah, they should just had a radio voice come on and say, you know, "The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor." It's like, okay, I'm in. You know, uh, damn it. <laughs> yes, I'll have to do it. So much, so much for my, so much for my strong desire to not do this. It's all, it's all over now, buddy. <laughs> All right, well, let's let, let's let's dive into the uh, a synopsis of the film. I just I, I now just have uh, alternate versions of this ticking over in my mind, and I I probably need to stay away from them. Okay. <laughs> well, this ought to be cozy. 
I should like to talk to you, Mr. Griffin. Please be seated. Surely. <clears throat> now, I've tried to find you for many years. Would you mind informing Mr. Griffin that it was I who found him? Well, I'm flattered, gentlemen. But what can I do for you? We want to pay you. Pay me? Yes, Mr. Griffin, we want to pay you. Yes, a fortune. I'm sure you don't owe me anything. And nothing I have to offer is worth a fortune. Oh, now, come, Mr. Griffin. There's no need for you to be modest, especially with us. All we want to buy is your father's formula, or was it your uncle who discovered it? No, no, no. It was his grandfather, Frank Griffin. Yes, yes, of course. Frank Griffin, senior. Shot by the police. <laughs> How fantastically romantic. You know, you could make a million with your grandfather's formula. <laughs> now, look, gentlemen, I, I'm not good at riddles and... Your grandfather discovered a drug. Injected into a man's bloodstream, it rendered him transparent, invisible. People treated with this drug are sometimes dangerous. They have to be liquidated. But if they are controlled, they can become very useful to any country at war. You do have the drug in your possession, Mr. Griffin, don't you? I'm prepared to offer you any sum that you like to name. But why come to me? Or why make things difficult, Mr. Griffin? We came with the best of intentions, but you're going to put us to a great deal of unnecessary trouble. Search the place. Now, wait a minute. What right have you to... This right. Very obstinate young man, huh? Post-credits, we are introduced to uh, Frank Griffin, who was played by the actor John Hall. He's the grandson of the Invisible Man. That would be the character Claude Rains played in the original film. Mm-hmm. And he is running a modest Manhattan print shop under an assumed name. Mm-hmm. The first scene is pretty awesome, I have to admit. It is. Four suspicious-looking men enter the shop on the, pr- on the uh, premise of conducting routine business. A confrontation ensues as one of the men produces a pistol, informing Griffin he is aware of his true identity. This gentleman is Conrad Stauffer, played by Sir Cedric Hardwick. He's a top dog in Hitler's SS. Stauffer explains that he and his Japanese companion, Baron Ito, played by Peter Lorre, are seeking Griffin's invisibility formula and are prepared to use force in order to obtain it. Griffin barely avoids having his fingers lopped off in a paper cropper by Stauffer's strong-arm men and manages to escape with the secret formula still in his grasp. Now let's talk about that sequence. Yeah, yeah. Because this this whole sequence is very well done because the menace... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Creeps up and up and up. Sure does. And once again, the, the sheer genius of employing somebody like Peter Lorre, because what you have is Sir Cedric Hardwick sitting down and, and just, after they've forced mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Griffin character to have a little seat, mm-hmm. and Sir Cedric Hardwick sits across from him, mm-hmm. and they're very calmly discussing what they want, and he's at first claiming he has no idea what they're talking about, and this conversation goes on. Mm-hmm. And the entire time, Laurie is just looking around the shop and starts fiddling with this uh, paper cutter, paper cutting device, mm-hmm. and is just kind of amusing himself with it, and occasionally interjecting a line or two yeah. here as part of, as their conversation goes on. And then when it becomes clear that they're going to have to use force, it's Laurie's character who suggests bringing him over there 
and putting his hand in the paper cutting device. And it's Lori who is the one who, as one of the soldiers, is holding his uh, Griffin's hand under this device, is slowly lowering the blade with the threat that he will cut off his fingers if he doesn't talk. And, of course, he agrees to talk and then uh, manages to make his escape. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fascinating because the scene has real gravitas. It has real yeah. threat. Yeah, yeah. It's well done. Mm-hmm. It's well edited. Everything. This is textbook, well done, suspenseful mm-hmm. sequence. It is, and I mean, <clears throat> I think, um, I think the whole film overall, the editing and pacing of the film is really good. Yeah. You know, there's and even and whether it's a comic sequence or a suspense sequence, I think it's well directed and the and edited. I completely agree. One thing I will point out, Mm. the next time we see Frank Griffin, uh, he's sitting and having a conversation with uh, government officials Mm -hmm. about this incident as the government official is trying to convince him to turn the invisibility drug formula over to the military for them to be using it Mm. in wartime. Mm. And uh, Griffin is sitting there and he's got a bandage on his hand from, you know, where they were trying to cut his, you know, where they, they, the, the, the blade edge touched Mm. his hand. But unfortunately, the bandage is on the wrong hand. Yeah, you were the only person. Yeah, you're the first person that pointed this out to me, and I've never. You, you said you've never seen that. Nobody else has. I've not, not noticed that anybody has pointed yeah. this out. I mean, they but may have. Right, but you're right, though. You're right, though. Definitely. I when you were looking back in those scenes, you know, yeah, they they definitely bandaged the wrong hand there. I think you know what that means is probably the the mm-hmm. scene. The, you know, the the scene with the bandage is shot before the scene with probably. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, it is it is one of those odd things where I immediately when watching it this time I immediately went they bandaged the wrong hand. <laughs> it's, just, it's like why that's a that's a that's a that's a little movie flub. <laughs> well, nevertheless, uh, Griffin refuses to turn over the invisibility drug even to the American government because he just he he basically says, look, it's uh, this drug is too dangerous. It drove my grandfather insane. Uh, Really, I'm as far as far as I can tell. Use of this drug is it's it's far too dangerous to try to to try to put into people, even people who'd be willing to do it, just you know, to even for uh, wartime stuff. But uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, as we've already talked about, mm-hmm. <laughs> Griffin has a change of heart and volunteers mm-hmm. to become an invisible spy for the Allies and parachutes over German lines. Now, uh, I'm willing to give the movie this. But it is one of those things that you only give a movie, mm-hmm. which is they're they're sitting there and he's like, okay, I'm willing to give you the invisibility drug now, mm-hmm. but I only if I'm the only person who uses it. Yeah, I was like, one one the first thing they would do is, are you sure about that? Yeah, <laughs> and if he had, if he persisted in saying mm-hmm. that, it'd be like. Okay, sure. And then as soon as they could extract the fucking formula from him, yeah. they'd be like, okay, look, yeah. let, let's explain a few things to you. Yeah. You're not a spy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. you have no training. You're... You run a print shop. Yeah. <laughs> You're not a spy. Mm-hmm. You could be a soldier. We'd be glad to draft you, put you through, you know, put you through boot camp yeah. and have everything turn out just fine. Yeah. But... Yeah, and they have a point because, let's be honest, a true spy probably wouldn't... Uh, Shall we say, call so much attention to himself uh, oh when you like yes. like turn overturning tables onto people and spilling, you know, and making. A, <laughs> we'll get to yes, that. we will. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but he insists that uh, he will be the only one to use it because uh, you know it's far too dangerous to be to be injecting willy nilly into people and stuff like this. And it's like okay, because this is a movie, Mr. Griffin will go along. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like eh, all right, all right. <laughs> well, 
Because you're just bland enough to be our hero, you know, and you're just, you know, he's not bad, but I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. compared to, you know, our villains, he's just, you know, he's he's not going to carry the scene the way our villains can. No, he's not. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I do have one more nit to pick besides the wrong bandage on the wrong hand thing, uh-huh. which is, okay, he parachutes into Germany, mm-hmm. which is a pretty good scene, mm-hmm. uh, but... I get irritated because this is the this is the moment where I started to wonder what the tone of this movie was, mm-hmm. which is he parachutes out, mm-hmm. a, he injects himself and then parachutes out of the plane. He becomes invisible on his way down. Mm-hmm. Which at first I thought, okay, this is very smart because he's trying to extend the length of time that he'll be invisible. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's doing it at the very last second. He's not mm-hmm. doing he's not doing it before the plane takes off. He's doing it now, and then as he floats down underneath the parachute. He becomes invisible and undresses. Mm-hmm. And all I kept thinking then was, no, you are fucking not. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you have magical tearaway clothing, you are not undressing while yeah. still wearing a parachute. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. And, I'm, and I'm sitting there watching you going, <laughs> you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do yeah. that, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking right at you right. you can't do that. It's like, ah, oh, yes, we'll edit away and suddenly his pants aren't on. It's like, yes, <laughs> that's the only way you could get those, clo- those pants off while you're wearing a goddamn parachute. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, I found that to be the moment when I was like, yeah. all right, movie, mm-hmm. I'm willing to go along with only he can be the invisible spy. Mm-hmm. Now you're asking me to go along with the somehow getting the clothing off while you're wearing a parachute. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else are you going to ask me to? Ex- Come on, mm-hmm. don't don't do this to me. Don't do don't, Please don't do this to me. And so there's a period of this movie mm-hmm. and it's called the next 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, the next 10 minutes. Where you're not sure how it's going to go. Where I'm a little concerned uh, about the tone of mm, the picture. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah. Luckily, things change after that. Yeah, but yeah. I was a little concerned with the mm. magic undressing on the way down thing. Mm-hmm. The now transparent Griffin locates his contact, who is a, a, a carpenter named Arnold Schmidt who reveals that Frank's mission is to obtain a list of Japanese spies operating in the United States, now in possession of Stauffer. That would be the mm. Hardwick story, the Hardwick character. Now, uh, one thing I would like to point out, some of the dialogue in this movie is great, but I have to admit the dialogue when he meets the uh, the carpenter is a, is a little ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it, it's... Yeah. I well, they they told me to expect an invisible man, but it was like, well, what did you expect the invisible man to look like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's going. I just yeah. I didn't know I didn't expect an invisible man when they told me to expect an invisible man. Is what yeah, I expect him to say at that yeah. point. It's like, dude, dude, we needed somebody needed to rewrite this dialogue yeah. here. It's like, yeah. Come on. How about I, here's something I just here off the top of my head. My God, <laughs> this is incredible. Uh-huh. Reaching out and touching him and going, I can hardly believe my anything. Come on, yeah, the, the normal stuff other than. Well, they told me to expect it. No, no. Toss that dialogue out. Try again. All right. Sorry. I will stop bitching, man. Because I really do like this movie. Don't oh, get no. me wrong. Yeah. I sound like I'm just ragging the shit out of it. But we will get to the parts where I, I, I think this movie like rushes off into the awesome stage. Mm-hmm. So, Well, Griffin dashes off to the home of uh, Maria Sorensen, who's played by Ilona Massey. Mm-hmm. She's a British spy posing as a German agent and Stauffer's paramour. Uh, I will point out, and this is straight out of the Universal Horrors book. So I will, uh, I will quote, I will quote from the Universal Horrors book: "The number of coincidences in the film amount to an impressive total." Yeah. Now, thing is, while watching the movie, I don't really consider that to be that much of a coincidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that, uh, 
this SS agent that Hardwick's playing, uh, you know, the fact that he has this list that we need to obtain, I, uh, okay, hmm. I'm sure there are lots of German bad guys with, you know, secret information that we would want to obtain, but it doesn't seem that untoward to want to, for a movie to want to hold on to a single villain played yeah, by a really yeah. good actor, so right. not yeah, that big not a deal. Think, no, yeah. And it, I don't think it's, you know, you know, if you're if you're going to try to get something from this guy, what mm. you want you want him in with somebody who is already in place to yeah. try to weasel information out of this fella. So that mm. seems like the most natural choice. But I understand. You know, if you start counting coincidences in a movie, suddenly mm-hmm. it becomes mm-hmm. something that falls apart real quick. Mm-hmm. And not just this film, that's for sure. With Stauffer away on government business, Maria has been entertaining his immediate subordinate, Carl Heiser played by uh, J. Edward uh, Bromberg, who makes no secret of his affections for Maria. Uh, Griffin, who has been imbibing Heiser's champagne since he shows up, since he showed up at Maria's house, takes advantage of his invisibility to harass the Nazi while he's trying to eat dinner. Stauffer then unexpectedly turns up and, sensing disloyalty, orders Heiser arrested. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that sequence there. Yes, there is. There is. Some good, some good, some bad. Well, I'm gonna lean on the I'm gonna lean on the bad. And let you talk about the good because okay. All right. what irritates me that. most about this sequence is yeah. this is where I feel that in a in a better version of this script, what's going on here is our invisible man character fighting against the effects of the drug and that that are making him do stupid Dude, things, yeah. Ma- making him. In other words, uh, imbibing alcohol mm-hmm. made it wor- make, makes it worse, mm-hmm. and he starts doing things that he, he really shouldn't be doing because it draws attention to the fact that mm-hmm. there are things that are happening in the room that really can't be happening. And so uh, I find this whole comedic dinner sequence with uh, the invisible man, you know, mm-hmm. dumping food in the guy, dumping food in the Nazi's lap, and and doing all these ridiculous little shenanigans, I find it to be... Well, to be honest, it goes... For one thing, it goes on for far too long. If it had been like one thing, if mm-hmm. he just mm-hmm. dumped food in the guy's lap one time... Mm-hmm. But there are multiple things that go on mm-hmm. that just generally can't be going on unless there's somebody else in the room that you can't see. So it's this scene that I think, for me anyway, mm-hmm. is the weakest sequence in the movie. Because mm-hmm. the tone is so fucking weird. Mm-hmm. It's... It's essentially a comic Nazi character hmm. who then later in the movie isn't a comic Nazi character. Yeah. I like the character later in the movie. See, and I do too, and that's one of the things I do. What I liked about this scene was the fact that it faked me out for the rest of the movie. Oh, I well, thought okay, okay. the fact that it set him up to be something less than what he actually ends up being. I thought his uh-huh. exit from this scene was going to be his exit from the movie. I thought that this was the only reason he was in this movie was to give us this comic sequence. And you, I agree with you, it goes on too long. I think they were banking on the fact that Americans would just like to see an American making a fool of a Nazi, you know, yeah. and they, so the scene plays out. What I like about the scene, within the scene, is <clears throat> I think, regardless of, of what we feel about the overall tone or the point of the scene, is I think it's well, I think the timing of the scene and the effects and the actors all involved, you know, I think their comic timing is good. And I think Alona Massey is actually quite good in the scene because she's kind of varying between wanting to bust out laughing, but also realizing how risky and stupid the stuff that the Invisible Man is doing is at yeah. the same time. And I think she plays that very well. 
Um, but I especially like the fact that it totally it didn't I didn't see coming how important this character becomes later in the film. Um, that's, luckily, a, that's, luckily, that's a good point. Yeah. Luckily, it's the closest the film gets to pushing the comic relief boundary. Because yes. what I do love about this film is that whatever comedy there is in the film is at least directly related, you know, to continuing this story in the sense that, you know, it doesn't, to me, this scene still doesn't grind the film to a complete halt in the way that a lot of comic relief sequences does, where in so many films we see, you know, when the comic relief starts between the character that's supposed to do that, it's like, er, you know, you hear the brakes screeching on the story (laughs) to why we have to sort of spend time with this. You can can hear the plot gathering dust, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is the only sequence in the movie that, I, ha- I really have a problem with it yeah, because yeah. the rest of the movie feels like what I want it to feel like. Mm-hmm. And this movie, th- this sequence feels like they, they feel like, like, like they, maybe they felt that they needed to have a certain amount of humor in the movie. Yeah. And be, so yeah. it's just kind of all shoved into this sequence. Mm-hmm. And I almost felt it part of it was just that we want some, when you're going to have the invisible man in the room, we got to have some, impressive invisible man effects you know and it could come down to that it's like you know it's like let's, let's, let's show some more of this kind of technical wizardry of John Fulton which I think is on great display in this film you know well, it's like let's is, go ahead I mean, and do they, they have a scene in the movie and I can't remember if it's right before this or right after this it is right before this mm-hmm. where he um, he takes a sh- he takes a bath mm-hmm. and you can see him you know rubbing soap mm-hmm. onto his invisible arms and legs mm-hmm. and it's just that's some impressive special mm-hmm. effects. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. 1942 or not, yeah. that's some yeah. impressive stuff. And it seems like that's a better use of showing off the special effects wizardry that's going yeah. on in this film yeah. than this this silly this silly stuff that's really not being done with anyone on set. It's being right. done with you know with wires and things of that nature. And it's uh, like I say. I don't like the tone of the film. And even if they wanted to do something like this to inject a little bit of humor right here, there's too much of it. Yeah. But then once Hardwick's character shows up, yeah, and puts a stop to all this this shit and has him has you know the the other Nazi arrested and carted off to jail, uh, the tone switches back to what I kind of want the film to be, and it kind of remains that way for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Uh, not that there aren't uh, the occasional uh, funny lines of dialogue, but they're the kinds of things that kind of grow out of the scene instead of feeling like they're the point of the scene. Yeah. So, hoping to pinch the prized list of Japanese spies, Griffin arrives at Stauffer's office only to find the German officer ready and waiting for him. In other words... Yeah, they baited him, which is nice. They baited him into this because they they realized that he had to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Frank outfoxes his adversaries, steals the list, and heads for Schmidt's shop to have the invaluable information sent to England by radio. Griffin's next stop is Heiser's prison cell, where he forces the condemned ex-officer to reveal the date of Germany's planned bomber attack on New York. Now, I like this plot line because... Yeah, me too. Uh, first of all, it's, it's a very, little ridiculous. But it's very pulpy, too. So. It's, it's extraordinarily pulpy. This is yeah. exactly the kind of thing that mm. makes me love stories like this yeah. from the 1940s because... going to bomb New York. Yeah, with this. Right, right, right. In 1942... Germany really did not. They didn't have no. the capability of no. bombing New York. The Atlantic yeah. was far too far, far too yeah. far a distance to go. Yeah, I don't think Hitler ever really much envisioned even having to do that. His thought was, if I conquer Europe by that point, it'd be too late for the Americans to really do. They'll have anything. to deal with me. Yeah, right. We'll, you know, we'll establish some kind of working relationship, yeah. and that'll be the end of it. Mm-hmm. But of course, this is an American film built as war propaganda. Mm-hmm. So, 
it's not enough for us to posit that they're about to start bombing, you know, London or they're right. about to do this, that, or the other. Yeah. We've got to ramp it up and it's got to feel, you know, it's an American movie. We, they feel like they've got to threaten the homeland. They've got to mm-hmm. threaten, you know, some, you know, either Washington or, or, or New York City, some obvious mm-hmm. giant, unmistakably American spot on the map that will make a, yeah, an American audience go, those bastards. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. So, uh, Heiser confesses that the attack is scheduled for that very night, which, there's your question. Okay, there's your, yeah. (laughs) And in return, he is sprung from jail by the Invisible Man. Unaware that Schmidt has been arrested by the SS, Schmidt is the carpenter who's supposed to be sending this information off, by the way. Right. In case you forgot that name. Uh, Griffin steals into this shop and is captured by Baron Ito, who ensnares him in a net lined with razor-sharp fish hooks. Yes. Remember I told yeah. you about the, the tonal shifts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the grit of this film, yeah. <laughs> the grittiness. Well, so you have There's, that opening scene where they're, yeah. they're, they're threatening to yeah. cut his hand off. Yeah, I know, yeah. There's that. And then you have this sequence with the fish hooks. Yeah. And, and it's pretty, yeah. It's, it's pretty a, brutal. And it's one of those things where this is the tone of the movie that, that when, the, when the movie is in this tone when it has this yeah. feel when it has this kind of nasty air about it mm-hmm. this is when i love this movie and it doesn't it's also when it doesn't feel really like a 40s film it feels more like a 30s film in little these bit. moments here you know and and the part where uh uh Schmidt, uh, when they torture him, or you know, and yeah. him, then they're asking him, wanting him to sign the paper, and he says, "I can't. You've broken all my fingers." You know, oh, know. and it's like and, lines and like that are like things like, "I don't know if you get away with that in most of the '40s movies." You know, that's no, kind of interesting. I don't even that think they, they would try it. And I think yeah, the only reason yeah. they're trying it in 1942 is because it's a bit of war propaganda, yeah. and we're just they're just amping yeah, up exactly. the amount but, of cruelty from the from the yeah, villains. Yeah. Now, now I do have to say one thing. I did have a I thought was rather interesting is that Key Luke, who plays the Japanese doctor, who extracts the fish hooks from you know yeah. from him because he has to keep him alive uh, and they get the net off of him and extracts all those hooks off of him and he obviously he says well I've, you know he basically tells Peter Lorre I've, he's, uh, he'll live now I've you know I've saved him from dying I'm thinking well you uh, you did it without bandages because bandages would show up exactly I'm like so you know this guy's got to have holes all in him I'm not sure how you fix those holes but you didn't do it with bandages <laughs> well, and, and this is something I wish they, would, they were never going to do this in a 1940s mm. film but I would mm. love for them to have done a thing where even if they weren't going to have bandages on mm. the Invisible Man which I think would have been a great effect for them mm. to do mm. I would have loved for them to do the thing where some kind of bandage or something like that that's laid on the invisible man there when 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 he's when he's telling him that he that he'll mm-hmm. live now and you lift it up and you see that the blood is seeping you yeah. can now see the blood yeah. as it seeps into mm-hmm. the the uh the bandage I think that mm-hmm. would have been an interesting thing yeah. to kind of play with the idea of being able to see the outline of the body because there's some blood along the mm-hmm. side along the side of him where the fish hooks have made him yeah. bleed yeah. but they're never going to do that right and not in the 1940s we're not going to see mm-hmm. that kind of we're not going to see bloody detail like that right. unfortunately uh, oh another thing that was kind of a little bit of a jolt to me uh, and I didn't really necessarily pick it up till the second time I, I watched the film um, that is kind of surprising for a 40s film is, is when uh, the Invisible Man helps um, uh, Heiser escape from his cell. Yeah. As they're leaving, Heiser turns back around and goes and shoots the two guards who they've subdued. Oh, yes. 
you know, and, and you're like, okay, yeah, I know they're, the thinking is, hey, the German soldiers, no one's going to care. But still, I kind of like, whoa, that's that's kind of a little bit of, uh, that's kind of not necessarily your 40s. That's kind of that's kind of harsh, It's you know, because the way yeah, he, they start to leave and they've subdued yeah. these guys and knocked them out. But he makes a point of going back and, and executing them. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> well, and, and I think that that, I think the reason they put that in, it's, it's just another way for them to, to paint the villains as truly as true villains. villains yeah, 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 yeah. Don't waste your time. Should I call the guards in now, or can we talk this over like gentlemen? Why, Mr. Stauffer. Four stories high, no fire escape. I wouldn't jump if I were you. You might break every invisible bone in that poor invisible body. You're a very clever man, Mr. Stauffer. Uh-huh. Now I think we can come to an understanding, or shall I turn on the heat, as you say, in your country? That's a very good idea. It is rather cold. You do me a favor. Sit down and rock. I shall feel safer if I know that you're not standing behind me. Oh, by the way, that book that you were reading just now is a list of the German and Japanese agents in the United States. You walked right into our trap. Our trap? When I told Maria about the secret papers in my office, I knew that you were there. I felt sure that you'd snap at the bait. Keep rocking. A cigarette? No, thanks. Or a drink, perhaps? No, thank you. Now, Mr. Griffin, since you are in no position to bargain, I suggest that you hand over that formula. We'll make it well worth your while. Money doesn't interest me. My living expenses have dropped to nothing lately. No, I wasn't thinking about money. I'll let you keep what you already have. Your life. Keep rocking. Unfortunately, I can't oblige you about the drug. I don't know the formula myself. Very well, then. You forced me to use methods that I'd hoped to avoid. Is this where we stop being gentlemen? <laughs> hey, before we uh, go through the rest of the film and kind mm -hmm. of spoilerize everything inside, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the actors and directors involved here. Let's talk first of all about uh, John Hall, mm -hmm. the actor who plays the, uh, the Invisible Man in this film. Uh, he was born Charles Felix Locker, or Locker. I think mm. it's Locker, probably. Mm. And uh, Oh, Locker, that's a little too German. I think we know why we want to <laughs> change it to Hall. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, let's, let's ratchet hey, that down. Yeah, it's like, so yeah. <laughs> well, uh, John Hall is one of those guys who, he was a, he was a, a, a really good-looking guy, mm -hmm. and uh, that's how he ended up in the movies. And uh, I have to admit that where I first paid attention to him mm. was uh, actually not in uh, any of the movies that he made, but because I got I got rooked into watching a whole lot of episodes of uh, a 1950s TV series he was the star of for three years called Raymar of the Jungle. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never seen uh, it. I'm not necessarily going to recommend it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I'm not going to claim mm. it's a great. I mean, mm. it's... It's Raymar the Jungle. I mean, it's exactly what you, it's exactly what you as, think. As Jungle Man series goes, how would you rate it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, he's not. He's not. He didn't play a Jungle Man. He plays. Oh, uh, oh, oh, I would. Uh, like I was picturing. White, I thought it was Great White Hunter. Oh, okay. I was picturing a Tarzan rip, and I was. No, no. Hunt. It's uh It's it's not. It's it's fun if you know what you're getting into. Yeah. It's more like a uh, what's the uh, series the Tarzan the guy that had played Tarzan. Oh, oh, uh, you mean uh, Jungle Jim? Yes, Jungle Jim. Kind of like a Jungle thing, Jungle Jim yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well. The uh, 
He's in the 1960s, by the way. He made, he directed, and starred in two films that I actually know him for a little bit better than anything else, which is uh, the Navy versus the Night Monsters oh, from yeah. 1966, yeah. and uh, the Beach Girls and the Monster oh, yeah, 1965. Absolutely. Yeah, that that one's unforgettable. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I would actually uh, defend uh, the Navy versus the Night Monster. I think it's pretty cool, pretty cool mm-hmm. a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll be honest; it's been so many years since I've watched the Beach Girls and the Monsters. I can't remember if I should defend it or not. So. <laughs> not really, but yeah. Probably, probably not. But, but there are worse ways to waste your time. So I'll put it that way. <laughs> well, uh, of course, he he uh, he he made this movie, and he's also in the, uh, the the sequel, the movie that comes after this, The Invisible Man's Revenge. And then, uh, at, right after he made this, is when he started uh, making movies with uh, Maria Montez. Oh yeah. Ended up making six movies with her, starting with uh, starting with some pretty cool stuff. To be honest, The Arabian Nights in nineteen forty two. White Savage in 43, Cobra Woman in 44. Mm, I think which, we'll get to that one at some yeah, point. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, Cobra Woman is one that I i can't wait to actually talk mm. about. That one was directed mm. by Robert Siodmak, Kurt's brother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good, good film. But he had a really interesting career over time. Uh, one of the things that he, he, he lived long enough to actually be able to get interviewed by a lot of people to talk about his career over time. And so there's a lot of great, great quotes from him. And he ended up making a lot of really interesting films, not just uh, the uh, the stuff with Maria Montez. He made some uh, some westerns in the in the late '40s as well. Ended up doing a lot of movies for producer Sam Katzman, which of course means that they were low budget. Mm-hmm. Not a big shock there. And then moved into television, like I said, Raymar of the Jungle. The occasional feature film would come along, like Forbidden Island from 1959. Apparently, was sadly not a success. And then he, was, he would do a few television episodes, like Perry Mason and things like that. But one of the weirder things is that uh, he was also an inventor, and he was uh, he was a pilot. He held patents on an underwater camera called uh, Optiv- uh, different lenses for it as well, mm-hmm. and uh, the design of the hulls of PT boats for the U.S. U.S. Navy was part partly his invention. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Uh, during the 1970s, he he actually ran a camera lens firm called Optivision Company of Santa Monica. Wow. So, multifaceted kind of guy. Yeah. He, uh, like a lot of people who work in uh, Hollywood, he uh, ended up with several marriages and several mm-hmm. divorces. But, uh, sadly, uh, he died in 1979. Um, he was diagnosed with incurable bladder cancer. Yeah. And he was just in a lot of pain, and he uh, took his own life. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. He used a, he used a gun. Yeah. And uh, quite, quite a sad end, but yeah. also quite a... Quite an amazing guy. Yeah, sounds um, like it. I'm very, you know, very handsome. Yeah. Um, at the time, and we'll get to that when we get to some of the more uh, critical <laughs> critiques mm-hmm. of his uh, acting acting skills. Mm-hmm. When we get into some of the uh, the critics from the time talking about this particular movie, mm-hmm. but to be honest, I don't think he was. I don't think he was very. I don't think he was bad. I don't no, think he was no. terrible in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, I think it's some of those sequences when he's playing off of someone like Cedric Hardwick. Mm-hmm. There's some real sparks that fly there. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that is just the tension of the scene, yeah. and probably having a, a pretty decent director who we'll talk about in a moment as well. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like John Hall. I like him quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, I do too. Actually. I mean, I think he was good. Yeah, I think he was fine. Now, uh, playing the female lead, of course, our uh, British spy posing mm-hmm. as a German spy, mm-hmm. uh, Ilona Massey. Of course, where I know her from, and you probably as well, is mm-hmm. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Absolutely. That will be Coming 1943. Up, yeah. 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 But uh, she was uh, she was from Budapest. She was uh, at one point in her early in her career. She was she was billed as the new Dietrich, 
which she never really lived yeah. up to. Yeah. Uh, I was. It was decided that her voice just wasn't really there for what what mm. they thought they were going to do with her as far as being uh, on stage. Uh, I mean, on screen with uh, with singing and and being in musicals and things of that nature. But uh, she was in a lot of very interesting films, as we mentioned. Uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. My, my personal favorite of hers, as you might mm, expect. Sure. But uh, also, she was in uh, a Marx Brothers film. She was in Love Happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hate to say it, but she's another one of those actresses who, who just like, just like John Hall, ended up dying of cancer. Mm. Uh, that's how that's her. Her life ended in uh, 1974. Uh, it's almost as if you live long enough, yeah. you, you end up dying of cancer. But yeah, so sort of. Sad. Yeah. Sad, but true. But running the show mm-hmm. is director Edwin Mar- Edwin L. Marin or Marin. I'm not sure how to pronounce that actually. Now that I think about it, weird that this would be the name that trips me up instead of Elona, Elona Massey. I can I can rattle that one off from the problems whatsoever. Well, at any rate, he was a, a director. He was from uh, he was from New Jersey mm-hmm. and uh, studied at the University of Pennsylvania. Broke into the industry as a uh, cameraman and then worked his way up to being a director. What's weird is some of the movies of his that I've seen would be actually like, I think one of his earliest movies uh, is this little pod boiler with Bela Lugosi called The Death Kiss hmm. from 1932. And I'm not going to tell you it's a great movie, but I am going to tell you that it stars Bela Lugosi. And that's, yeah, it's old. So, so yeah. yeah, exactly. There's a Blu-ray of it out right now. Oh, is it really? Yeah, there's a Blu-ray. Yeah, that's okay. how I just recently watched it for the okay. first time. And like I say, not going to tell you it's a great movie, mm-hmm. but it's one I have on Blu-ray. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, take from that what you wish. And then realize just how many Blu-rays I have. I was going to say, of all the movies you own on Blu-ray, that's one of them. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Interestingly enough, he made uh, two well-regarded Christmas movies. He Mm -hmm. made the uh, 1938 version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, Reginald, the one with Reginald Owen. Yeah, and you know it's often overlooked because there's always the Alistair Sim 1951 version, and then there's. Good Lord, every version under God, Millions man. Of, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, there's so many of them. But, but yeah, about it, almost every December, I'll catch at least a little bit of the Reginald Owen one as it makes the TV rounds there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think it's a, it's a damn fine version. Mm-hmm. But he also made a movie called uh, Christmas Eve from 1947, which uh, I'll admit I haven't watched yet, yeah. but looks to be very interesting. Cool. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, it stores George Raft and Randolph Scott and wow. uh, Joan Jump Blondell. Man. And uh, cool. yeah, it sounds sounds pretty interesting to save her fortune from a design uh, from a designing nephew. Matilda Reed must locate her three long lost adopted sons in time for a Christmas Eve reunion. Okay, and so sounds like good December viewing there. Exactly, exactly. And I watched actually the first couple of minutes of it because I found it on YouTube. Oh, cool! And it, it's already got a Christmas feel. We're just in the credits. Oh, so good. She's like, I, I want to watch this movie, and it's. February. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I may watch it anyway. I don't know. But uh, so he, he made that. As his career went on, he ended up making a lot of different kinds of movies uh, and ended up in a very long and very productive mm-hmm. working relationship with Randolph Scott. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, about the last six or seven movies that he directed before his death, his untimely death, he was only 50, I think, two when he passed away in 1951. Mm-hmm. He was he had been making Randolph Scott westerns just one right after the other. Mm. So it looks like he and Randolph Scott were big buddies and he okay. was he was kind of his trusted director for for years at that point. I saw that he also made uh, he's also the one who directed uh, Study in Scarlet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty darn good pretty darn good mm-hmm. uh, it is. Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Well, this film is, is this film tonight we're talking about is very very well done. I mean, I thought it was very well directed. And I think that's one of the standout things about this, and it's what made me want to kind of look into. Mm. I, I honestly thought that I might have seen more of his movies than I realized because you know you just you end up watching so many movies over time it's not until you look at a whole list of somebody's list of credits that you realize oh okay I've seen like 20 of this person's movies yeah. and unfortunately in this instance I've only seen a few of them but as with something like Christmas Eve mm-hmm. what I do is I, I find that there are several in his list of credits that I want to see and of course I'll always sit down and watch a Randolph Scott Western because sure. they can be highly entertaining Yeah, but this film pointed out to me that this guy was a really solid director. This is a guy who keeps things moving. Now, mm-hmm. granted, this movie is an hour and 19 minutes long. Yeah. And uh, I will say that there is, a, but the, I will say there's only one scene in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's that comedic scene, the the, mm-hmm. the dinner scene, that I think needs to be shorter. Everything yeah. else moves at the right pace. Mm-hmm. Everything feels, I never feel like there's any fat anywhere else in the movie yeah. other than that scene. And let's just say, too, that he's, as we, as we said early at, uh, in the beginning of the show, is that this film definitely, he was given, it apparently it seemed to be given means to work with that yeah. most yeah. other films of Universal in the 40s from their horror uh, was not were not given. I mean, he, he actually, he obviously had a budget <clears throat> here to work with. They obviously considered this to be something of a prestige film, and one one thing that I think points right directly to that, uh, talking about our actors, we've already talked a lot about Peter Lorre, but looking where this film falls in Peter Lorre's career, and Peter Lorre, of course, had a long and great storied career, but this film came a year after Maltese Falcon, and yeah. it came in the same year as Casablanca and Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, so those three films, arguably three of his most famous films, so the fact that they got Peter Lorre for this shows you right there that they were aiming for something higher because this is at, and arguably the high point of his career when they managed to land him for this film. You're right. I hadn't thought about the the kind of spread of, uh, well, what we term classics now. I mean, because mm. the, you got to remember, this movie was a big hit. Mm. This movie made a million bucks in 1942. Cool. Yeah. So... Not, not just making back its money, mm-hmm. even though it's a fairly expensive film because of the special effects involved, but this movie was a success. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, and it's the fourth film yeah. in the series of these Invisible Man pictures, mm-hmm. and you know, usually by the time you get to the fourth film, you kind of might be wanting to pull the plug eventually, but I, this made so much money, they made a fifth one. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, early, way, way back when we were doing, I think, the very first Invisible Man film for this series, which is Invisible Man Returns. Right. And the first Mummy film we covered, I told you that, you know, I was going to be comparing the (laughs) Invisible Man franchise with your beloved Mummy franchise. And I got to tell you, your Mummy franchise has got a lot to live up to after this one. Well, they're very different approaches, and that's something I wanted to bring up. I understand wanting to compare them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, my God, what different approaches these two series take. Yeah. Each Mm -hmm. of these sequel films take a completely different approach to yeah. the material yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't watched the fifth one. I haven't watched Me Invisible either. Man's yeah. Revenge yeah. in forever. And I've never seen it. It's another one I've never seen at it's, all. I've seen it once, and, and I don't remember it well. Yeah. But the first sequel, the one with Vincent Price, Invisible Man Returns, mm-hmm. feels like what you would expect a sequel to the first film to be. It kind of has the same tone. Uh, it kind of tells a similar story. They're, you know, they, they juggle things around, they change a few things, but it's essentially exactly what you'd expect of a sequel to a successful movie. Followed by The Invisible Woman, which is a freaking comedy. Yeah, yeah. Which, 
is such a total shift away from exactly what you would have expected if you were like thinking about this as a series of movies. Yeah. It's just a complete left turn. Mm -hmm. Then you get to this movie and it's a freaking spy movie. It's an espionage thriller. Mm -hmm. That's not what you would expect from the previous movie or the movie before it Mm -hmm. or even the initial movie in the series. The Mummy movies have the same tone across the board. To a large degree, their stories are so freaking similar that you... Have, you have to like really bear down to, to, remember, to remember what happens which one which. <laughs> has which element, right. who's the bad sure. guy in yeah. that one. Mm-hmm. Is this one a sequel or is this a standalone? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, what the mm-hmm. fuck. But with the Invisible Man movies, dude, every one of them is different. Yeah, I and, mean, like every one of them is different yeah. in, in, in significant ways. And the way that they kind of the, I think the way they approach the Mummy films is, is more common of the way they approach most of their monster films. Right. Interesting that this would be placed in as as considered one of the universal classic monster franchise sequels but the and it's interesting that the fact that it was so successful which I didn't even realize till you just said that I oh, didn't know yeah it made a bent odd that they didn't that they didn't think oh let's apply that to all of our monster films instead they probably looked at it and said oh we need to keep this nazi element going we need to keep this world war 2 propaganda element going that's what made it successful they didn't think Oh, hey, if we had this kind of success with Invisible Man, let's put this kind of money and prestige and means behind our next Frankenstein film and behind our next, you know what I'm right. saying? They, they, yeah, it's, it's interesting that it didn't really carry over to the future monster films, you know, this kind of level of, you know, not to say that they're, I mean, I love the future monster films oh, we're yeah, going to be covering, course. but I just don't think that they were considered on the level that this film was as far as Universal, I don't think, approached it with this, this kind of, of level of commitment of means to it, I think. Well, I mean, like I said, this this film proved to be the most successful of Universal's <clears throat> Invisible Man sequels, with profits surpassing the $1 million mark, mm-hmm. which exactly why we got one more film out of this, yeah. which means that that fifth film probably wasn't very mm-hmm. successful to yeah. one degree or another. Yeah. But it being that successful is exactly why, for the first time, between this movie and the next, they carried over the lead actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John yeah, Hall. Sure. John Hall yeah, is in the yeah, next one. They're like, mm-hmm. let's let's Just try to keep, keep everything in mm-hmm. place mm-hmm. because that million dollar movie. Yeah. We're trying to milk it for another picture. So. Yeah. Allow me to congratulate you upon the speed of your news service, Baron. One minute sooner, you would have beaten the fire engines. And perhaps caught Griffin. <laughs> Tell me, sir, that book listing our agents in the United States is still in your possession, of course. Of course. Uh, you see, when you asked me to let you have that book, you promised to guard it with your life. And you know, of course, that uh, should the names of so many of our loyal agents fall into the wrong hands, it would cost me my life. Really? How interesting. Your life. Certainly. In my country, when a man makes a mistake... (laughs) uh, Would you mind showing me that book? As only one copy exists, its uh, safekeeping would comfort me. Unfortunately, other people's comfort is not my strong suit, Baron. Oh. May I remind you that though we are access partners, you are still on German soil. Our code demands that we do only what we consider best for our own welfare. I see, and at the moment my welfare is not related to yours. You are very discerning, Baron. I cannot allow my judgment to be influenced by consideration of your welfare. That is your decision? I'm sure that you won't mind in my informing the Japanese government about your unique handling of our affairs. Do what you like, Ikito. But you are still in Germany. I've never been more aware of it. Okay, so uh, once 
once uh, Frank has been extracted from the razor sharp fish hooks mm-hmm. by Key Luke, <laughs> Key Luke was he was he Charlie Chan's number one or number he, two son? Number one? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think number he was number one, one son in the uh, the Charlie Chan movies. Uh, Frank and Maria are whisked away to the Japanese embassy, which is soon overrun with Stauffer's men because, of course, these Germans and these Japanese cannot trust each other no, they can't. at all. They're dastardly bastards looking mm-hmm. to stab each other in the back at every opportunity. opportunity. Yes. So, Griffin and the girl escape in the melee as Stauffer and Ido clash with each other. And I love this whole sequence. Me because too. It's great, yeah. This is where the film's darkness ramps up because there's been darkness throughout. I mean, like mm-hmm. you were talking about the scene where Schmidt's fingers have been broken yeah, and they're, yeah. they're trying, they want him to sign a, mm-hmm. a statement saying that he hasn't been harmed while he's been, yeah. <laughs> been in custody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this is that whole, this is, like I say, so much of this film I absolutely love because mm-hmm. the tone they take. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's wartime propaganda, which means the villains got to be painted as dark. Yeah. And this is some cool stuff. And remember, we're going to be spoiling this, so if you haven't seen this movie, we're, we're going to be talking about the ending here, so just deal with it. Mm-hmm. If you don't want, skip ahead until uh, the end of the show. I don't know. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, they escape as Stauffer and Ido battle it out. The, uh, the Japanese fella stabs Stauffer to death, then, realizing the depth of his complete failure, because, of course, they don't have the formula and they don't have Griffith, he's gone, he is honor-bound to commit Harry Carey. So mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. as Laurie's character kneels on the, the floor of the Japanese embassy, killing himself, we then have more Germans burst in. <laughs> I love the fact that he tells Stouffer before he kills him, you know, says, this is my, just I'm giving you honor you don't really deserve by killing you. I'm like actually, yeah. you know, giving you a chance to die an honorable death, you know, so. It's, it's this whole sequence, man. It's I great, really yeah. love this whole sequence. Yeah. While making their way to the airfield, Griffin and Maria commandeer one of the bombers earmarked for the New York air raid. They drop a load of explosives on the rest of the fleet, just kind of dive bombing the, the, the other planes yeah. on the airfield. And let's, I want to talk about that real quick, too, because I'm assuming, although I'm not sure, that most of that footage, at least as far as them bombing the miniatures of the planes and Which stuff. Which is really cool. It is, and I'm guessing that it's not, I don't think it's stock footage from another film. I don't, I, I don't know. know. Now, it could be, but if it is, it's incredibly well integrated. I mean, yes. there's obviously there's some footage of troops fighting that you can tell is stock footage, but the actual scenes of bombing the planes, I'm saying, either that's another example of the kind of budget they gave John Fulton to do this film, or they took it from another film, but it doesn't I mean, it blends perfectly yes, with with the main footage there. So either way, it's great that they use it there. So. And if this is if these are sequences done for this film, it explains the attention that this film got for its special effects. Because if those miniatures, yeah. th- those miniature explosions and the the mm. destruction of those planes mm. and the the airfield buildings is part of this film, was shot mm. for this film, I now understand why not just the Invisible Man effects, but these mm. miniatures are yeah. well worth paying attention to yeah. for, you know, award consideration. Yeah. So. I, I, I say his name so much. John Fulton, man. He doesn't get he doesn't get the credit he's due, man. You know, he's, he's, just, he's the guy's fantastic. <laughs> without without him, uh, most of the incredible special effects in this series would just not exist. Right. I mean, they, right. He's, the, he's the genius who came up with a lot of the ways they, they did these tricks. So. Yeah. As they drop these explosives on the rest of the air fleet, uh, Heiser is cut down by Stauffer's assassins, you know, ending. And I like the way that ties that up because early, much earlier in the film, he tells, you know, he tells uh, his men to shoot Heiser or somebody tells the men to shoot. I can't remember if it's, is it Stauffer that tells Yes, I think so. But it's happened so far back that you've really kind of forgotten, you know, forgotten that those guys were told to do that, you know. And, and And so Heiser's now suddenly, because of Stauffer's death, 
Heiser son like I'm top dog, but he didn't know that he these didn't two realize guys, they, and these, they don't know he's dead. They don't yeah, they, exactly. So <laughs> I love that. Well, in a romantic wrap-up scene, Griffin is restored to visibility and is reunited with Maria. Now, with that line, mm-hmm. I'm going to point to the to. You might think that the one element that I would love to have extracted from this film mm. as unnecessary would be the the humorous touches. Uh, I only want the humorous touches dialed back mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. the idea of having an invisible man in scenes means that there's going to be a couple of jokes just mm-hmm. built into the way a story like this would be told regardless. So yeah. I'm not against the humor in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm, in a, I'm against the one scene that seems to go on for too damn long whose focus is humor. Yeah. The one thing I would extract is this unnecessary romantic thing that just seems mm-hmm. pointless. I much I would yeah. have much preferred if these two, if uh, there was almost an antagonistic uh, relationship between John Hall as the Invisible Man mm-hmm. and Ilona Massey, because it would have felt it would have felt satisfying for the two of them to come together in the third act to save each other's lives and get the hell out of Germany. Yeah. And the thing I find most interesting about her character and the way that the film is written is I do think it plays pretty nicely with the question of whose side is she really on? You know, I think, and I think that because this film has a dark edge to it, me at least, it kept guessing. I think had the film not had that, that willingness to go to a grimmer area, I think I would have just assumed all along it being a forties film that she's just going to, obviously in the end, the love interest is going to win out and she's going to be proven to be on the side of the good. But because of the areas, the film, some of the things the film was willing to do had me all had me kind of, doubting okay, okay I felt for the most part she was probably on the level but I, I the way they kind of nicely played back and forth between whose side is she really on I thought it, it kind of made me wonder if is she really going to end up being turn out to be you know one of the bad guys at, at the end of it you know it's, it's so so I you know that was kind of what to me was more interesting for her character than her relationship with the invisible man you know as far as the yeah. romance aspect of it I didn't find well, they don't, spend, they, they don't spend a lot of time on no. ro- quote unquote romance no, in the movie, no. but it's just one of those you know it's one of those little things that it almost feels as if they they felt they had to have that element in the story. Yeah, and it's I know I know at this time it's it's they're, they're trying to cut you know they're trying to four corner it man they're trying to cover mm-hmm. every base sure, yeah. you know yeah. every base that they could they're trying to get mm-hmm. a little bit of everything in there right and uh, so I I understand why they're doing it and I'm glad there's not so much of it in the movie mm-hmm. that is distracting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I say, I think it would have it would have been more interesting to me if they had found a way to add a little bit more grit by having you wonder about her let's just say her her final decisions on what she's going to do, where mm-hmm. her out where her allegiance mm-hmm. really lies would have been more in question if we weren't uh, seeing her, you know, start to kind of fawn over the good-looking John Hall when he puts cold cream on his face and she can see what he actually looks like. And it's like, eh, it's, can we, you know, let's, let's be a little more hard-edged here. We're talking about the death of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people if we're if we're not on top of things. And, you know, I, I, like I say, so minor. that is another minor complaint. All of my complaints about this film yeah. in general mm-hmm. – Tend to be minor. Yeah, same here. Except uh, for the humor thing, mm-hmm. me feeling like they're just there needed to be that that scene needed to be sh- that the dinner scene needed to be shorter. Mm-hmm. So that's the extent of my that's the extent of my real complaint list mm-hmm. about this movie. Yeah, the rest of it is just praise for yeah. a movie that uh, is part of an Invisible Man series and yet works pretty effectively as a wartime propaganda espionage story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know I'm, I'm not gonna 
try to pretend to somebody that it's mm. freaking Alfred Hitchcock's foreign correspondent, yeah. but no. I'm going to tell you that it's a solid little picture. Well, like I said, I was just really... This has been one of our series so far. This has been one of those that uh, that was just a really nice surprise for me. I mean, I wasn't expecting it to be bad, but I just wasn't... I was expecting it to be more kind of a... I guess I think I used the words earlier, filler, kind of pot boiler, sort yeah. of, you know, program or whatever. I just wasn't... I didn't realize how much... Uh, budget and, and prestige they put into this film and and uh really really enjoyed it a lot you know it was it was a nice i mean this is definitely a film i mean i'll go and tell you i gave it a seven you know oh, and it's, yeah. it's definitely it's definitely a film that i can see myself you know just just kind of popping in at random every now and then over the years you know from now and i think i want to watch this again at some point well uh i'll quote this from the universal auras book because mm-hmm. I, I i am in accord with this statement it says interestingly for all the blatant propaganda present in the film Siadamak was perhaps too cynical a screenwriter to indulge in a lot of mawkish, jingoistic flag-waving for the Allies, preferring to keep the blistering anti-Nazi tract front and center. Mm. So he's not... Uh, it, it never feels like we, you mm. know, we're, we're mm. being told just how mm. awesome we are. Right. We're just being shown yeah. how bad our mm. enemies are. Yeah, And that always feels a bit more natural of a storytelling element because... Mm. We're very, it's very much a pulp story in the first place. It's good versus evil. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you, history has gifted you with true villainy. So yeah. ride that some bitch sure. off. You know? sure. Go, right. go, go. Yeah. Yeah. Nazis are the one thing that nobody ever complains about stereotyping. <laughs> yeah, it's, true. it's like you just, you know, it's, you really say all you want to about the Nazis. You really don't need, you don't, you know, there's not, you know, you don't have to be PC when it comes to Nazis. Without a doubt, my favorite performance in the movie is Peter Lorre. Yeah. I think he is so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, the moment that had me wanting to just back the film up and watch it again and again is the scene where we're in Germany at this point, and Peter Lorre's character enters the room with several, mm-hmm. with, uh, with Hardwick's character and several other uh, Germans in the room. And one of the German soldiers marches up and says, Heil Hitler. And uh, mm-hmm. I think one of the other Germans. Hiles yeah. back to him. Yeah. And Lori, who seems kind of distracted, looks up when he says Hiles and goes, oh, yeah, Hiles. Yeah, just kind of, yeah, waves it out like, yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's one of those perfect moments yeah, where is. he's completely in character because the, the character's deep in thought. Yeah. But he's also, you know, yeah, okay, I'll go through the motions, but he's so obviously unimpressed yeah. with this ridiculousness. Yeah. yeah. And he's, he's, uh, he's, he's busy. He's got mm-hmm. stuff yeah. on his mind. Yeah. It has absolutely nothing to do with this silliness. And mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is great. I know exactly the moment you're talking about. It's awesome. Well, I mean, I, I like in the book that, uh, they, they, they wonder if, uh, this kind of half-hearted Heil that he says may or may not have been in the script. And I do want, I wonder about that as well, because yeah. Lori was, Lord, Peter Lori was famous for, uh, going off script, yeah. uh, on occasion. Uh, not necessarily making up dialogue, but putting a spin on things and maybe mm. adding or subtracting from something mm. to kind of emphasize one thing or another. And there are moments, uh, little moments like that that you can catch even in you know these pot boilers, these programmers, mm. these shall we say less prestigious pictures where you think, man, that really feels that feels like something that I won't, I don't know for sure that someone write on the write the script. I don't I'm mm. not sure mm. that feels like an actor who's who's really feeling it that day or really feeling that and is convincing somebody, hey, let me play it this way. Let me mm-hmm. play it, you know, let me yeah. play it in this way instead of in a, in a, uh, a more uh, obvious way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little, it's a little, 
they're grace notes. They're little yeah. touches like that yeah. that can elevate a movie in a way that you just don't expect because it, it just injects a little bit of, mm. of juice into the story yeah. that uh, otherwise the, the movie mm. just wouldn't have. Yeah, but it's a perfect thing what it says about his care about the character yeah. too. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a perfect it's a perfect mm. example mm. of what you can expect from that character for the rest of the movie. Yeah. The the, the 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 silliness, the things that he mm. he considers to be unnecessary, mm. he just gives a half-hearted whatever to. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you gave it a seven. A seven is about where I mm-hmm. I, I find it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, none of the sequels are on the same level as the original nineteen thirty three film. Right, but um, this is pretty damn solid. This is actually yeah. Yeah. Uh, so far this is my favorite of the sequels. Agreed. Yeah, same uh, here. Same here. Which makes me really excited to eventually get to uh, the Invisible Man's Revenge, and therefore kind of. Uh, I think once we get to Invisible Man's Revenge, we'll take a take some time once we've watched that movie and kind of thought about it for a while to kind of look back, give our ratings of the entire series. I don't yeah. think I don't think it's going to be a shock to anybody that we're that we're that both of us are going to feel hmm. that the original film is the best of the series. Yeah, yeah, but of it becomes a question of of the sequels yeah. that we will have all, you know we will have covered all of them at that point to kind of uh, line them up in, in terms of which one we like the best at least. Yeah. And I think that that will be a very interesting way to look at these. Mm-hmm. Because for right now, this is my favorite of the sequels. Mm-hmm. I think Invisible yeah, Agent is just a really strong movie. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. We'll get to contemporary reviews in a moment, but I did uh, ask, uh, I did throw up on the ye old social media the question about this film and what some other people might might have mm-hmm. thought of it. Uh, I let pe- uh, people chimed in. Uh, we had uh, Don Cunningham chime in with, uh, let's see, Invisible Agent. A fun film with just the right running time, mixing minimal sci-fi with wartime espionage. When is trying to infiltrate Nazis not entertainment? <laughs> I agree with that totally. Infiltrate the hell out of them. Infiltrate Nazi the bastards. hell exactly. Uh, Matthew Kowalski chimed in with just uh, the just Peter Lorre's name and the Japanese flag. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Jeff Clark uh, chimed in. He said, "Let's see. Uh, Peter Lorre, as as usual, stole the movie." The childlike joy he has at the beginning when it looks like he will get to torture someone is hilarious in a dark comic sort of way. He basically plays the anti-Mr. Moto. Yep, exactly right. I think he's right. Uh, John Hudson chimes in with the word invisible. So okay, of course, see, you knew I, he would I, find I, a I way. Hate, I hate Hudson, of course, so yes. <laughs> uh, Jeff Clark again, he says, P.S. I wish they would have kept up with the war theme. Imagine Dracula versus Hitler. Wolfman, agent of the OSS, etc. <laughs> the possibilities. Yeah. And that is, a, yes. That's they, a great point. They, that would have been a great way to go. They did not go down that path. No. And it would have been a very different uh, series of monster movies if they had. <laughs> uh-huh. They they didn't. And that's, in a way, kind of a shame. I, yeah. Wolfman, agent yeah. of the OSS. That yeah. would, uh, yeah, I can see that. That'd be fun. <laughs> Pete Quint, fellow podcaster, chimed in with a joke. Like, what, should I read it out? I don't know. It says, uh, you spelled monkey wrong instead of invisible agent. Yeah. Invisible monkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're on my shit list, Pete. Uh, Mark Clark, uh, who was just with me on last episode with uh, about, uh, talking Ultra about Ultra Q, Q yeah. says, fun entry in Universal's most underappreciated series. Fascinating idea. Great supporting cast. I love that almost every installment in this series is a different genre. Oh, yeah. that's, that's a good way to put it. Different yeah. genre. Uh, yeah. A different genre. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good way to put it. I I wouldn't. I hadn't really thought of it those times. I mean, they're they're all different, but different genre. He's yeah, he's probably right. Uh, David Colton, he of the Rondo the Rondo Awards. Award, yeah. uh, this movie is sadly unappreciated or underappreciated. It has everything: a great cast, 
a true sequel to The Invisible Legacy, plus an exciting ending with miniature airplane action. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and in a way, if this had been the first actual sequel to the first film, man, what a series this would have been shaping up to mm-hmm, be. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, 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 I agree. Uh, Troy Howarth chimed in. He says, Peter Laurie and Sir Cedric Hardwick are both outstanding. Add in J. Edward Bromberg, and the villains make the movie. Uh, he played uh, Heisen. He, he, Heiser. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Heiser, uh, mm-hmm. who goes from, you know, being, you know. What we think's going to be the buffoon. Yeah. To, to be a, a deadly, mm-hmm. murderous Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> now, I love David Duaz. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Huh? Never saw him. Yeah, thanks, yeah, yeah. Invisible yeah. agent, thanks, yeah. Dave. He'll yeah, be here all week, folks. <laughs> He'll be here all week. Enjoy the buffet. Yeah. Enjoy the dad jokes. <laughs> Tim S. Turner. Uh, he says, an underrated film, an interesting twist on the Invisible Man formula, but it's the, it's the supporting cast that really shines here. Peter Lorre, Kay Luke, uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bloomberg, uh, Bromberg. Uh, you can't go wrong with them backing your film. True. Very yep. true. Yep. Uh, Derek Cook, our uh, Monster Kid Radio fr- mm-hmm. friends, just chimes in saying, I love this one. And fellow podcaster Christopher Page says, oh, interesting. Uh, we, that would be Lydia and I, just talked about the uh, director's first film, The Death Kiss. Yeah, that would be on uh, Orphaned, uh, Orphaned Entertainment. Uh, they must have covered, yeah, they covered Death Kiss, right? That's right. He said, we had some issues with the film that might have been due to poor direction. I'd be interested in hearing what you think of his direction in this film. I got to tell you, I think that uh, Death Kiss is a very creaky movie. Mm-hmm. But I think that a lot of that boils down to it being, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> being a film made in 1932. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this director went on, uh, let's, let's just say the direction of this film is exemplary. So, so uh, that cool. would be cool. Thanks, uh, thanks, fellow podcasters and geeks and all all of you. You did a great <laughs> job. With, thanks for thanks for your feedback there. And now let's get to some of the contemporary. Ah, uh, yes, I'm reviews. sure. They, I'm sure they uh, a true joy. One yes. of the one of the reasons one mm. of the reasons that we really we really get uh, we get too much fun out of this. We really mm. do. <laughs> uh, Critics Corner. Oh my goodness! From Newsweek, August seventeenth, nineteen forty two. The studio has assembled a cast that is much too good for the nonsense on the agenda. (laughs) The film's authors can be funny when they try to be, though sometimes funnier when they don't. (laughs) That's a mixed review, I think. Yeah, I think so. Harrison's Report, August 15th, 1942. Fairly entertaining. The trick photography is handled well, but it doesn't offer anything new. New York Daily News, August 6th, 1942. Signed, Kate Cameron. Two and a half stars. Amusing and exciting, the actors play their supporting roles capably, although none of them tries to be convincing. I can see that. The Hollywood Reporter, July 30th, 1942. H.G. Wells, doubtless would be extremely pleased to learn that the character he imaginatively created is now engaged in confounding the Axis. The show is all in fun and absolutely, absolutely guaranteed not to give information to the enemy. Possibly the smartest thing about the picture is its consistent refusal to underrate the intelligence of the Gestapo and the Rising Sun operatives. They are as hep to the plot as you are, this being one of the first times such villains have been shown as capable of adding two and two and reaching a correct answer. Hmm. 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 That's kind of a, yeah. that's a little bit of praise there, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. You're treating these mm. people seriously. Yeah. Yeah. The Film Daily, August 7th, 1942. All in all, this is the ordinary peacetime Meller translated into wartime pattern. 
The Nazis are made to look pretty stupid and beset with official rivalry, while the Japs appear like slippery villains of the old serial days. I got news for him. The 1940, 1942 was still the serial days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, those, so those are the contemporary reviews of the time. No, no, Bosley Crowder. Crowder. No, no, man, no, I was hoping Bosley would. would I, I was hoping that Mr. Yeah. Crowder, I was hoping yeah. this would be one that he would have reviewed, but he yeah. did not. So, as you can see, in general, mixed mm. reviews. Yeah. But yeah. the fact that this damn thing made a million bucks yeah, yeah. means that there uh, may have been something driving interest beyond just mm. the special effects that everybody would have expected mm. from an Invisible Man picture at this point. Mm. I think it may be that uh, this being an early war propaganda film, mm. one, maybe one of the first ones really out of the gate and definitely one with the, mm. a, a real cast, yeah, decent budget, and a, uh, shall we say, a spy bent mm. yeah. that takes you into Europe. The story mm-hmm. takes you all the way to into Europe. Yeah. I think that that may have been something driving a lot of the ticket buys. Which, by the way, I, I meant to say earlier, the uh, I think one of the most striking images from the movie is uh, when our Invisible Man dresses temporarily as a Nazi, you know, with the, yes. the high-collared black jacket and hat. I mean, it's actually a very, you know, I mean, that actually to me is very visually really memorable. And I think that the, um, I just... I was looking at the. Uh, do you remember the artwork that was done when these films were released on VHS? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the artwork, those painted uh, yeah, covers, the, yeah. Those, those painted covers for the VHS tapes were absolutely beautiful works of art, and that is the image used. Oh really? For the, for the painting for the uh, cover of the VHS tape, which is just you know an, invi- uh, an invisible man in that high collared uh, Nazi great. coat with the with the with the hat pulled. Perfect up. choice! Wow, I wish I I, I, never, I don't ever remember seeing that. That's oh great. Yeah, 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 and it's just one of those images yeah. where just as soon as you see it, you're like, oh, that's the perfect art yeah. Yeah. to, to a- advertise this film. It's it's absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant, mm-hmm. and it just reminded me how uh, impressive all of those covers oh, for those VHS great. tapes were. They really. Man, I, I I need to put together a, ga- a gallery for my blog oh, were, about yeah. those things because uh, I actually found a, a version of that piece of art without the uh, the the titles oh, of it, oh, really? without without the without the invisible you know invisible agent mm-hmm. or any of the mm-hmm. any of the universal images or anything like that. It's just that painting, and it's just like man, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. a really great piece. So uh, obviously, we we like this movie yeah, quite a bit. So. Uh, and I think it's uh, there's a part of me that kind of just wants to just immediately leap to the fifth film so that we can <laughs> kind of look back on the whole series and, and talk yeah. about them as a whole. But I think that that may be something that uh, I want to propose this to you. Uh-huh. Um, maybe not necessarily. Uh, maybe we, we we divide this out once we've covered uh, the fifth film somewhere mm-hmm. down the road. Uh-huh. Maybe we uh, we have a, a little mini cast where we where we break off the discussion of all of the films, all of the Invisible Man films, and yeah. just like do a short little podcast where we just talk about our feelings about each of the films and which ones we like best yeah. at least and something like that. We'll, yeah, we'll throw that out yeah, to the... Yeah, uh, not a bad to, idea. Let's throw that out to the listeners yeah. and see what they think of that idea. They, th- that would be something where we would we would keep it as its own separate little, you know, small yeah. episode that where we would just discuss those films mm. briefly and then get back to the regular mm. track of talking about the next film in the series so, or okay. the next film in the in the release schedule. Um, yeah, yeah, Invisible Agent. Mm. Man, this is a, it's a big thumbs up for me regardless yeah, of, me the, of, the, of, the little, of the nits I have to pick yeah. about it. This, yeah. this is a fun flick. It really was. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll, I'll leave everybody with a thought, or just a uh, visible man, a thought on the, the visible man as a character. And, and we mentioned it before, I think, when we, I think maybe back when we covered the uh, the first sequel in, in this series, Invisible Man Returns, as a, you, you know, Invisible Man is, again, always listed and included 
as part of the Universal Monsters franchise. Yeah. Uh, but we, I think we've laughed before about the fact that he's he's really just a naked man that you can't see. <laughs> That's we, true. It's always so hard to think of him as a monster, but <laughs> not too long back before the whole work from home thing, back when I actually had an office to go to and actually had people in the office that I would sit and eat lunch with, you know, we got in discussion one day about. The question came up as if you could choose to have either flying or invisibility as a superpower, which would you choose? <laughs> and after discussing this quite a bit and bouncing the idea back and forth, we came to the conclusion that both powers by themselves are really pretty damn useless. <laughs> I don't know if flying is useless. I, well, because first of all, I mean, well, like I said, now it's different. If you're flying and you've got super strength, okay, you can carry people out to you know out of danger. You can carry, you know. I'm just, thinking, just, got, I'm just thinking about avoiding traffic. I, then that... Yeah, that is a but. But you also are going to be seen every day by people pointing and screaming at you, and you know, and you're going to draw oh, a crowd really quick. Yeah, that's you true. Know. Yeah, I thought about that. And uh, the invisibility thing is like, you know, how how many situations are you going to find yourself in where where being completely naked is not just completely uncomfortable and, and puts you at incredible risk? You know, for, well, I mean, we never <laughs> talked about the fact that you know he he parachutes in, he parachuting into Germany <laughs> naked, dude. yeah. And then onto a rooftop. Only, on roof. only a few times does he complain about how cold it is, and it's like, yeah, you're, dude, you're in, you're naked. Yeah, yeah. It's freaking cold out yeah. there. Everybody's wearing <laughs> coats and jackets, and it, and you're walking around with your balls hanging out. You are suffering from frostbite. Yeah, it's like it doesn't matter if you're invo- if you're in, uh, invisible. You're still, in most cases, going to be the most vulnerable person in the room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the moment the moment somebody thinks to throw flour on the floor and knows where you are, yeah. you're meat. Yeah. <laughs> you're dead. I don't care if your blood's invisible yeah. or not; it's going to yeah. leak out of you. Yeah, and your invisibility isn't going to fool that Doberman Pinscher there in this <laughs> no, in the corner. He's going to march right. He's going to march right over and latch right onto parts of you that you yeah. don't want. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Oh, that's. That's a whole other time. Yeah. For another, you wonder, you do wonder where the German shepherds are. <laughs> yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> Aren't they lurking around yeah. usually in a film like this? But no, no, no. You don't think about it while the movie is rolling, no. and that means the movie was a success. That's right. That's right. Um, kept you from every. Yeah, the best movies keep you from asking the deeper questions, <laughs> such as what the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did want to get in one last quote here. Uh-huh. This is from uh, actor John Hall. Okay. Uh, like I say. Uh, he lived long enough to uh, be interviewed multiple times about his career, and so uh, was actually able to give some thought to what he experienced as an actor going through the golden age of Hollywood. And I really just love this quote. He says, uh, I never liked acting. I don't like to be told what to do and what to say and how to say it. I'm grateful to it as it provided me with the money to do the other things such as I'm into now. But as a profession, it's a bore. <laughs> Mr. Hall, yeah. I applaud you. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the only person, by the way, who has a job that they fucking think is a bore, but it allows them to do other things. That's right. That's I'm right. in that category, sir, <laughs> and I respect you. <laughs> yes, and I know you also don't like to be told what to do, what to say, and how to say it. I don't even like people looking at me. No, no. That's why no. podcasting is the way yeah, the way yeah. I've gone. Here. You don't even like this thing called humanity that it happens to share the, the planet with you. Have you ever noticed that humans smell weird? <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. They do. They smell very strange. Well, folks, hang mm. on a second. Before things go completely off the rails, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk to you about what we're going to be doing on uh, NashiCast and here on the Bloody Pit the next time that Troy and I sit down to talk. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. 
Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. All right, folks, thank you once again for tuning in and listening to us talk about Invisible Agent. I keep, I almost just said the Invisible Agent. <laughs> I really, I'm having a trouble yeah. <laughs> getting, getting rid of the, 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 uh, the Invisible Man. It is the Invisible Man. Now I'm having doubts. It's the Invisible Man, right? The 30, I think 33 so. film? I think so. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, the Invisible Man. Yeah. Jeez. Now I'm having all kinds of doubts about possible <laughs> titles of these movies. This is insane. Uh, the Invisible Woman. It was the Invisible Woman, is wasn't it, the, it? Yeah, I think so. Is it the Invisible Man Returns or just it Invisible? Was the, it was definitely yeah, the Invisible okay. Man Returns. Okay. Man, okay, so so much pointless confusion. <laughs> thanks for everybody. Thanks to everybody for le- listening to us talk about Invisible Agent, a title of which I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to uh, just to keep you abreast of what Troy and I will be doing for the various podcasts next. Well, the next time we sit down to record, uh, which I'm assuming will be in a few weeks. We'll be talking about, uh, it'll be over on the NashiCast feed. We're going to be doing a new episode of the NashiCast over there where we're going to uh, finally, <laughs> finally <laughs> tackle a movie, a, a Paul Nashie movie that. Um, oh, oh I, the reputation I, this film yeah. has. I threw down a massive big red X veto long ago about this movie, and I gave serious doubts to Troy about us ever covering this movie because its reputation is so horrendous that I really uh, was not sure that I wanted to suffer through it. But uh, we have found an interesting way to talk about Mm -hmm. the movie Shadows of Blood from, uh, I think, 1988 or 87, something like that? It's definitely 80s. It it smells like the 80s. It looks like the 80s. It tastes like the 80s. Not in a good way. It's not in an 80s tease kind of way, but in an 80s shot on video kind of way. Oh, God, yes. First of all, '80s shot on video. Is, that tells you, it's, yeah. It's, it's I, can, I, I can I can feel parts of my body evaporate. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 no. At any rate, uh, we found a, a probably pretty interesting way to talk about Shadows of Blood. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to finally cover that movie, uh, which which. I, in, in a strange way, I'm kind of excited about. Yeah. Not excited about the movie because I know yeah. that it's going to feel like a tooth extraction, but. Right. This the backstory is, is going to be fun to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Talking about the movie is going to be more fun than talking mm-hmm. about the uh, thing that got put up on screen called a film. Yeah. So, that's uh, our next episode of the Nashi Cast. When Troy and I reconvene here mm-hmm. <laughs> for the next 1940s Universal Horror film, uh, the Universal Horror series takes an odd turn. Well, we're starting a series within a series, basically. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Much like the Invisible Man series. Yeah, right. Series within a series, and the Mummy films are a series mm. within this series. Uh, the Wolfman films are a series within this series. Hmm. 
damn it to hell, we got another series within this series, and it is the Sherlock Holmes series produced yep. by Universal in the 1940s with Basil, Rathbro- Basil Rathbone and Na- Nigel Bruce. Uh, these movies are a lot of fun. We will, we will uh, as far as we can tell, they'll be covering all the ones they made in the 1940s. Yeah, and this They all seem to kind of have a, you can shoehorn them into a horror genre if you want to as far as i can tell you know some of them are definitely definitely horror movies Mm -hmm. some of them really really are Mm -hmm. and uh some of them i'm kind of wondering how i'm going to feel about them being part of the uh, universal horrors kind of Mm -hmm. stream of things but Mm -hmm. i'm not going to feel bad about covering these movies because i do yeah because we love yeah yeah sure so next time will be the first from the 1940s run sherlock holmes and the voice of terror uh, 1942, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Co-star- co-starring Evelyn Anchors, so it's definitely a horror film. Then. Definitely a universal <laughs> horror movie. You think because it has Evelyn Anchors, it's something yeah, a horror film? Yeah, that tipped me off, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I think actually you're closer when you start talking about Henry Daniel. Henry Daniel being in it, it yeah, he's, yeah. Henry, Henry Daniel being, uh, he's he's one of those guys that could also pull off villainy with, with, with just uh, a sigh. Yeah, he's yeah. Just, <laughs> he's one of those people who just looks like he's already disgusted with you the mm-hmm. moment he laid eyes on you. <laughs> so, uh, Next time, uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror here on the Bloody Pit. We're going to have fun with this. Uh, I've been kind of starting to do research on these movies about uh, six months ago, simply because I knew they were on their way. Cool, cool. uh, But I've been holding off on rewatching them because, well, you want to come into it fresh. So, folks, Mm. I can tell you right now, as I've, for practical purposes, I haven't seen any of these. I know that I have because I used to show them late night on TV all the time. And so they would come to on sometimes after like Saturday Night Live or yeah. after, so you know, and I would just kind of stay up and watch some of them. You know, so many years now they all blend together. So I know that I've I've seen. I don't know if I've ever seen any of them from start to finish. I probably have, you know. But but going into this, I might as well just say I haven't seen them at all because I can't look at those titles and conjure up any kind of image or, or say like, oh yeah, I know that one. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that I've had these on DVD for about I'd say fourteen or fifteen years, and I've. Watched and rewatched them mm. repeatedly over the mm. years, but I've been I've been trying to stay away from them once we started this series so that I can come to them as fresh as I can. Mm. Uh, and I gotta say I enjoy every one of them. I just mm. it's gonna be fun to, to pick them apart and just mm. decide which ones we enjoy most. But uh, like I say, I can't remember, Voice of Terror, regardless of the that phrase in the title, I can't remember how that's gonna fit into the horror theme that mm. we kind of have going here with this stream of things. But nevertheless, uh, folks, thank you very much for uh, tuning in. Remember, if you'd like to uh, add your comments. Uh, if you'd like to go ahead and send us in something about Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, please feel free. Be glad to hear from you. If you have any comments about any of the movies that we've covered on here, write us at thebloodypit at gmail.com, and we'd be glad to hear from you. You can also leave comments over on the Facebook page. We'd be happy to hear from you over there as well. I'm really bad at soliciting the, soliciting <laughs> these things, but if you have any desire to donate money to those of us who do podcasting and help us out, there's a donate button on the uh, the Bloody Pit of Rod uh, blog page over there on the right side of the page. You can tap that and send uh, send us cash. That would be uh, that'd be sweet. That'd be I will not complain. Uh, the fact that I'm actually saying this tells you that I'm getting over my my <laughs> fear of saying things like that. Yes, his his sleaziness is growing by the moment. My <laughs> <laughs> desire for cash is deep and wide. Uh, also, and this is an old school kind of thing. Wherever you listen to this podcast, if it is if it is possible to leave a review or a, uh, a five-star review, any kind of review of some type about the podcast, please do that. Uh, the more reviews we get, the more people pay attention to the show, the more listeners we have, and the happier that we are. 
especially in COVID times when yeah. we can't go outside to, to show people just how awesome yeah. we are. We yeah. have to do it over the internet. What we're saying is money can buy happiness, and that's a, that's a nice thing. That's a rare thing. So, yeah. <laughs> money, money can always buy happiness. Yeah. <laughs> people who say money can't buy happiness don't have enough That's money. right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Anyway, folks, thank you again for listening to the show. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. We will talk to you again soon.
Titans.